Thank you again for being here with us today. As we continue in 1 Corinthians, we encounter another source of issues within the church at Corinth this morning. And that source of issues, as weird as it might sound, is food. Now, we've already talked about the problem of division over teachers. In chapters 1 through 4, we read about people who say, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas. We've talked about the problem of sexual immorality within the church in chapter 5. We've talked about the problem of relational breakdown as well. So we hear the word food and we think, well, wait a minute, how in the world is food a problem? I mean, it's just food, right? Well, it actually ties back to last week. Last week, we saw that the Corinthian church consistently missed the mark on love. They thought they had all kinds of wisdom. They thought they were extremely advanced spiritually. They had lots of impressive gifts as well. But when it came to love, the Corinthians were lacking. In fact, if we go off of Paul's description of love in chapter 13, they weren't just lacking in love. They were practicing the polar opposite of love. And that's a major problem within the church, because love is supposed to be the most important thing. The message of Christ crucified is the very basis, the very foundation of our Christian faith. And that is a shocking story about the greatness of God's love for sinful man. And this is the love that God expects from his people, that God expects from us, not because we're good people, not because we're moral people, not because we try really hard, but rather because God has given us his spirit. Now, the passages that we read today, all revolving around something as simple as food, they further expose the lack of Christ-like love within the Corinthian church. Not only are the Corinthians suing each other, like in chapter 6, not only are their marriages falling apart, like in chapter 7, and not only are they looking down on each other, like in chapter 12, we see today that the Corinthians can't even eat together without causing significant problems. So open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Feel free to follow along in one of our Bibles, and if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you as you leave. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together. Father, again, we're grateful to be here this morning, grateful to have the privilege of coming and sitting under your word. I pray that as we read from your word, as I preach from your word, as every single one of us hears your word, that we would do the work of submitting to your word. That's not always easy. It's not always pleasant. But you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us in that regard. You've given us each other to hold us accountable. And I pray that we would be simply a people of your word, whatever that looks like. Father, thank you that we could even dare to come into your presence, that we would have the audacity to pray to you and the audacity to call ourselves your people, not because we're worthy, not because we're good enough, not because you owe it to us, but rather out of your mercy and out of your grace and because you sent your son. Thank you for Christ crucified, the message of 1 Corinthians and the message of the gospel for us today as well. God, be with us this morning as we worship, as we listen, and be with us as we leave later that we might put your word into practice for your glory. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, Eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? To eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's first mention of food arises because some Corinthians believe that it's acceptable for them to go to the pagan temples and eat food sacrificed to idols, just like they did before they followed Jesus. And it seems like they have a pretty well thought out theological argument for this, what they refer to as their knowledge. They argue that the old idols they used to worship really aren't gods. They're just hunks of metal, hunks of wood. There's only one true God. Well, Paul would agree. They also argue that what food you eat or don't eat doesn't earn or lose you any standing with this one true God. Paul would agree there, too. So if the idols aren't really gods, and if the food's just food, what's the problem, right? Well, the problem is that while the Corinthians may have a decent theological argument to justify their actions, they haven't considered how those actions affect their brothers and sisters in Christ. And no matter what arguments or knowledge these Corinthians have, they can't change the fact that there are fellow Christians who have a harder time letting go of their old beliefs, letting go of their old ways. Thus, those Christians still believe that they would be sinning to go into that temple and eat that food. And if those Christians see their brothers and sisters in Christ going to the temple and eating that food, they may be tempted to follow suit. Those second group of Christians may be pressured to violate their consciences and commit what they believe to be sin. And Paul simply argues that some Corinthians putting their fellow believers in that kind of situation under that kind of pressure is to sin against them. And a sin against a brother or sister in Christ 
is a sin against Christ himself. So Paul says that instead of thinking only about themselves, only what they should be able to do, only what they think they ought to be able to get away with, they ought to instead be thinking of their fellow believers. Now, again, the Corinthians justification for their actions seems to be pretty sound, right? I mean, those idols really are just statues and that meat really is just meat. And if you only look at that argument. Should they be able to go to the temple? Should they be able to eat the food? Maybe. But instead of only looking out for themselves, they ought to be looking out for their fellow believers, even if that means making sacrifices for them, even if that means not doing things they wish they could do, or they thought they should be able to do, or they hope they're able to do. The core problem isn't really food. The core problem is the attitude that this debate about food has exposed. Instead of putting into practice the love of Christ crucified, these Christians in Corinth are simply being selfish. Instead of thinking about how they can encourage and build up their fellow believers through love, they've become puffed up and arrogant because of their knowledge, because they think they know better. Because they're so enlightened versus the rest of the Christians. And that arrogance, that attitude is the exact opposite attitude of Paul. And it's the exact opposite attitude of Jesus as well. In the book of Romans, there's another conversation very much like this one that Paul has with the believers at that church. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul simply says that getting what you want, doing simple, trivial things, those little meaningless desires, they're not as important as loving your fellow believers. It's simply not worth it to get what you want. If it hurts a brother or sister in Christ. Now, when we read this passage, you can't totally be blamed for wondering how this translates to the real world, right? I mean, after all, I assume none of you have been tempted recently to go to a pagan temple and grab some cold cuts that were offered to a Roman god, right? At least most of you haven't been tempted to do that. So often when we read a passage like this, what we try to do is insert some controversial gray area of Christian behavior that Christians don't all agree on. So we read this passage and we say, well, today it'd be kind of like doing this or, well, it'd be kind of like doing that. Or, well, it's how some Christians don't agree on this and some Christians think it's okay, and some Christians don't think it's okay. But truthfully, the specific scenarios really aren't all that important. All the different examples that we try to compare to this passage really don't matter that much because the scenario isn't the issue. The main problem is the Corinthians attitude. And regardless of what issue or example you try to compare it to today, I think we can all admit that we're sometimes guilty of having the same poor attitude, the same sense of arrogance. We focus more on what we want to do and what we believe that we technically should be able to do 
and think very, very little about whether or not it helps or hurts our fellow believers. And we often have this attitude that, well, if me doing this offends my fellow believer, then they're just being too sensitive. They just need to get over it. They can just deal with it. How dare we have that attitude, according to Paul? The two men that we talked about last week in chapter 6, they had that attitude. They didn't care about how their disagreement affected their fellow believers. They didn't care about how their disagreement affected the church's reputation amongst unbelievers. All they cared about was winning the dispute. All they cared about was getting what they thought they had a right to get. And that simply isn't the attitude of Paul. It's not the attitude of Jesus. And that attitude is certainly not produced by the Holy Spirit. Commentator Gordon Fee writes, Personal behavior within the church is to be dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation. So the primary motivation for us is we decide what we're going to do and what we're not going to do, how we're going to live, what things we're going to participate in and what things we're not going to participate in. The main priority is not my desire. The main priority is not what I want. The main priority is the good of my fellow believers, because the good of my fellow believers matters more than what I want than my desires, than what I wish I could do without feeling bad about it. Now, this theme continues throughout much of chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians. Paul explains that he should be able to eat and drink whatever he wants. He should be able to marry if he wants or if he doesn't want to. He should be able to demand payment for his preaching from the Corinthians. And yet, Paul doesn't do any of those things. Paul consistently and willingly gives things up out of love for God and love for the church. Because if something would do even the slightest damage to the cause of Christ, Paul says, you know what? It's not worth it. I'll give it up. Simply put, just because you could do something doesn't mean you should do something. Especially if you care at all for God's glory. And if you care at all. For your fellow believers. You know, people my age often have this attitude of, well, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I'm just going to be genuine. I'm just going to be myself. I don't care what people think of me. And if they don't like me, they're just going to have to get used to it. They're just going to have to get over it. Well, honestly, that attitude is kind of cute when you're like 17 or 18 or 19. But that attitude has no place in the church. Because this is a family of God. We care what we think of each other because we care about each other. And we all want to see each other grow in our love for God and our love for his word. Now, as far as the Corinthians going to that temple and eating that sacrificed food, Paul would ultimately command them to stop. Stop going. Why? I mean, they were right about the idols not being gods. They were right about the meat just being meat. Why would Paul tell them to stop? What's the big deal? Well, in addition to not loving their fellow believers, there were other things that these believers didn't consider. 
They didn't consider the example of God's people in the past that, like them, they're not above getting sucked back into idol worship. They're not any better off. It happened to God's people previously. It can happen to them, too. They also didn't consider the fact that while those idols aren't gods, that's true, and while those idols may appear to be harmless, Satan himself can work through those idols to draw them away from the one true God. And finally, they didn't consider that by flirting with these idols, by flirting with their old way of thinking and their old way of living, they are playing with fire. The phrase that Paul uses is that they are provoking God to jealousy. But there's more about food. Look in chapter 10, verse 23, as Paul continues this long conversation in the book of 1 Corinthians. Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Remember that? They used that a few chapters ago. Chapter 6. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. I should be able to do whatever I want because I'm super spiritual, right? Well, maybe not so much. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the non-believers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. That they may be saved. As we read this passage, the context has changed. We're no longer in a pagan temple eating sacrificed food in the midst of some kind of religious ceremony. We're now talking about a meal in someone's home with meat that may have been part of a pagan ceremony at one time, but was then sold at the market much later. Now, in that scenario, Paul challenges these Corinthians, these Christians, to use their own judgment, use their own discernment of whether or not to eat. What is the context? Where am I? Who's watching? Who am I eating with? What is their attitude towards this meat? Do they think it's a big deal for Christians to eat this stuff or do they not? All these things contribute to that decision. Paul tells them to consider their conscience, consider the conscience of the person that they're eating with before they partake. Now, again, have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? Maybe you're at some kind of get together, block party, work party, family reunion, who knows? And there's something going around that people are doing, something that people are participating in. And you're a Christian. Some of the people there are Christians, but some of the people may not be Christians And you find yourself wondering, okay, should I do this thing? Should I participate in this? Is this okay for me to do? Is this sin? Is this not sin? What do I do here? 
Do I participate or do I look like a stick in the mud? I assume many of us have been in that kind of situation. Well, allow me to suggest a few questions to ask ourselves as we find ourselves in that boat. Question number one. Ask ourselves this. Does this action glorify God? Yes or no? That's simple. Does this action glorify God? Yes or no? Question number two. Does this action help my fellow believers? Yes or no? Question number three. Does this action help the testimony and the witness of my church? Yes or no? Question number four. Will this action make it easier for believers and non-believers to take me seriously when I talk about Christ? That fourth question might be the most important question. Will this action make it easier for non-believers to take me seriously when I share the gospel? If the answer to any of those questions is a firm no, then Paul would likely tell you that the decision is actually kind of easy as to whether or not to participate. It's just a question of whether or not you're willing to let your desires and let the things that you want get put on the back burner. It's rightly been said that there's really no such thing as personal freedom. No such thing as personal freedom because our decisions, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's fair or unfair, our decisions affect people around us for harm or for good. And even the most seemingly trivial things that you do, like what you eat or like what you drink in Paul's context, the most seemingly trivial things that you condone in others can actually expose a lot about your attitude towards God and your attitude towards your fellow believers. Our decisions matter, whether we want to admit it or not. But there's one more passage to consider revolving around food. And to be honest, this might be the ugliest one of all. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The selfish attitude that many of the Corinthians have has even started to spill over into their regular practice of communion. 
just like we do here at Prairie View every single Sunday. And if you want to know how bad things have really gotten, look again at those first few words of the passage. Verse 17. Paul says that things are so bad when the Corinthians come together for the Lord's Supper, when they come together for communion, that taking communion actually does more harm than good. Think about that. Paul's essentially telling this church that you are better off not getting together. You are better off not meeting and not taking communion. Because even in that sacred moment, the division continues. Whether it's division over teachers or division over business disputes or division within marriages or division over spiritual gifts, that division and this poor attitude has even carried over to their time of worship. Now, it's important to note that their practice of communion was quite different from ours. We're not talking about a little tiny piece of bread and a little tiny cup of juice. We're talking about a full meal. And Paul describes this as the kind of meal where those poor Corinthians who certainly existed within the church, those Corinthians would look forward to communion. Communion was the best meal they would have all week. But what happened when they got there? Well, even then, selfishness reigned supreme. Some wealthy Corinthians appear to be arriving earlier than the poor Corinthians. And those Corinthians are getting drunk on the wine. They're eating all the food to the point that they humiliate those Corinthians who have nothing. And they send those believers home hungry when that might be the one meal they can count on all week. So Paul reminds them what this meal is all about. This meal they take revolves around the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate act of unselfishness, the ultimate act of love for God the Father and love for neighbor. And that's what the Corinthians are supposed to be proclaiming when they come together. That's what they're supposed to be proclaiming. But because of their arrogance, because of their selfishness, they have tainted the Lord's Supper beyond recognition. Paul says you can't even call this the Lord's Supper because of how much you have tainted it. How much damage you have done to it. And when they come together like that, do you think they're proclaiming the cross of Christ? Do you think they're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes? Probably not. They're proclaiming something much, much worse. And they're proclaiming something that none of the unbelievers in Corinth would want anything to do with. And you know, they ought to be careful. Because in the verses following, Paul makes it clear that God will not be mocked as they take communion and they make an absolute travesty out of it. I think it's safe to say that the selfishness of the Corinthians has been exposed, hasn't it? And of all things, food is what exposed it. What they eat and drink, they only think of themselves when they do it. They only think of what they want. It's the exact opposite attitude that Paul had in chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. Remember, Paul said that I try to please everyone in everything. Paul was a people pleaser. Not because he wanted to get ahead in life, not because he wanted to score points with people for his own good, but because he wanted more people to hear the gospel of Christ. Paul was a people pleaser. But these people in Corinth, 
They don't care about anyone else at all. They only care about themselves. And their selfishness even extends to communion. The meal that's supposed to commemorate the most unselfish act in all of history. Their attitudes are completely off track. Completely misguided. The problem really isn't the food. They were right about that. It's just food. The problem is them. And while our situations may be different than theirs, our attitudes can often be eerily similar, can't they? We find ourselves caring more about our wants, more about our rights, more about our freedoms than we do about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that kind of attitude has put the Corinthians in a really bad place. And that kind of attitude will put our church in a bad place as well if we allow it to go unchecked. But here's the good news. While the Corinthians had that attitude, and while you and I often have that same attitude, there is one person out there who didn't have that attitude, who wasn't completely and utterly selfish, who didn't only care about himself. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Corinthians could have used that message, couldn't they? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The good news of the gospel is simply that the unselfish son of God subjected himself to death for selfish Corinthians. And he subjected himself to death for selfish people like you and me. But this message, Christ crucified, the gospel, the word of God, the Holy Spirit that God has given us. They don't just proclaim this message. They don't just give us information about what Jesus did. The gospel transforms us to be more like him. That's why Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this attitude amongst yourselves. The gospel serves to rid us of that selfish attitude, that we might better reflect Christ in our own lives, in our own words, in our own deeds, that we might better proclaim his death until he comes rather than proclaiming something else, like the Corinthians were doing when they took communion. So our prayer and our challenge this morning is this, that every single one of us would ask God to rid us of that selfish attitude that we are all too often guilty of. That he would rid our church together of that selfish attitude that every church is tempted to have. Our prayer and our challenge is that we might glorify God, that we might love our neighbor in every single decision that we make, big or small, 
even if that means making significant sacrifices, even if that means giving up things we wish we were able to do. Because the good of the church, the love that we have for our fellow believers, the advancement of the gospel, it simply matters more. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us more like you. That by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be shaping us and working on us and changing us to better proclaim the death of your son. That we wouldn't just proclaim the death of your son with our words, through knowing all the right things to say, through memorizing all the right verses and having all the right doctrines, but that we would proclaim the death of your son by our actions, by our attitudes, by our relationships with one another as fellow believers. I pray that our desires, our wants, our wishes, that we would put those things second, that none of those things matter as much as your glory and the advancement of your gospel and the good of our fellow believers. So, Father, as we leave here, and as we go into a world with lots of mixed messages about what one should do and what one shouldn't do, and the things that are acceptable and the things that aren't acceptable, and the things that bring God glory and the things that don't bring God glory, I pray that you would simply give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment, that as we make decisions, big and small, we would consider how they affect our fellow believers that we would consider whether or not that decision brings you glory. So, Father, let us be your representatives on this earth. Wherever it is that we go from here, whatever it is that we do, wherever it is that you've placed us, let us be good ambassadors of who you are and what your Son has done and what you're doing right now and what you'll do in the future as well. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions. They'll be standing at the side of the room as we sing one last song. But before we sing that one last song, uh, we do have a special prayer that we would like to offer on behalf of the Pafford family. So if I get the Pafford family to come up here in front of everyone. So if you don't know this, uh, if you don't know the Paffords, uh, the Paffords are a wonderful family. Uh, they, you are. <laughs> Most of you. The Paffords are a wonderful family um, that we've grown to know and love very much. Uh, and I'm sure many of you have as well. Uh, the Paffords love this church. Uh, and they have shown that in lots of different ways well before I ever got here. Um, And we're so grateful to have them at this church. But this family uh, is going through a lot of changes uh, here in the coming months. So we have Lily, who's preparing to start at IU. We have Jeremy, who is one step closer to finishing high school, starting his junior year. 
we have Mitchell, who just got back from a big transition in his life, serving overseas in the military for almost a year, right? And then, of course, we have Mary, who holds the whole thing together, and is just awesome. And then we have Carl. And... (laughs) Carl, the reason we're praying for them, their family, is because Carl is preparing to go overseas for about three months. Uh, He's going to be serving in the military. He'll be gone for quite some time. And we certainly want to pray for him, pray for his family, uh, and just pray for all of them. As there will be changes and adjustments and transitions coming up very, very shortly in their lives. Carl will be leaving in the next week or two. uh, So we certainly want to pray for their whole family as they prepare for all of this. So... With that, I'll pray for their family, and then we'll sing one last song, and we'll get out of here on our Sunday. Father, thank you for the pastors. Uh, Again, they are servant-minded, they are generous, they are kind, they are loving, uh, and they have served this church in so many different ways. Uh, Things that you see and things that you don't see, uh, things that get them a lot of credit and a lot of glory, and then things that... Don't get them any credit and don't get them any glory, but they continue to do them anyway. Father, uh, we pray for every single member of this family uh, as they all have their own unique challenges and their own unique um, adventures ahead and changes that are coming. We pray for all of them, that you would just help them adjust to the whirlwind of life uh, that I'm sure it feels like at times. Father, we especially pray for Carl uh, as he prepares to go overseas Uh, in a world that is scary, in a world that is unstable, uh, in a world where unexpected things happen. Uh, So, Father, I pray that you would keep him safe. I pray that you would give him a sense of peace, give him a sense of comfort, give him a sense of joy, uh, even as he encounters, I'm sure, some frightening things. Uh, Father, be with the rest of the family, that you would give them a sense of comfort and a sense of peace and a sense of joy, even as Carl is a long way away. And obviously, Lord, we pray that Carl would come home safely, that you would bring him home safely to us, that he would serve his country well, that he would serve you well, and that we would have yet another reason to be so proud of this family and so proud to call this family one of our own. So, Father, be with them in the days and weeks and months ahead. Watch over them. Help us as a church to be there for them as well, to care for them and love them and serve them and come alongside them however it is that we can do that. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this morning. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.